Howdy. Howdy. Hello, hello. Hello. <laughs> it's been about a week, and so I figure it's time to connect this. We're back with a tech- Well done, well done, well done. I didn't come up with a weird non sequitur that everyone would be confused by. I uh, like that one. That was good. Well, then maybe we'll just keep it and do it all the time now. Uh, <laughs> I've decided to introduce guests uh, in reverse order by eye color, and I'm starting with uh, Robert Boyle, the CEO of Planet Networks. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to have you back. Uh, we have another returning champion, Christy Batts, who is the broadband division manager at uh, Clarksville, Tennessee. Welcome. Thank you. And that's Glad light light tube. No, Telehome is light tube. I, you are yeah, we're CD light band. Light band. Ah, yes. Terrible. In the for people who want to look up light tube, the E is lowercase, but the tube Telehoma Utilities Board is capitalized. Great, great work on that uh, logo. Um, great people there too. Um, just now embarrassed because if anyone should know the Tennessee networks, I should. So, um, Travis is our co-host. Welcome back, Travis. Hello, I'm flattered you know my eye color i never knew that about you so i just made that up (laughs) (laughs) and i'm chris mitchell at the institute for local self-reliance and this time we're jumping into the show quickly to to get to the topics uh to dig right in um although we do have an image and so we're going to play a little telecom peekaboo we're going to see an image that um uh, i think travis might know what it is but christy robert and i have just barely gazed upon it so um Travis has suggested it would be a fun one for some reason. So I'm going to ask Henry to throw it up and uh, on the screen here. What are we looking at, Travis? So I was in San Diego in, uh, in Little Italy, and I was walking along, and I saw this very actually interesting deployment, how they did their light poles. They have, um, if you can see in there, they've got surveillance cameras mm-hmm. integrated in there. It looks like they've got some sort of wireless access point because if you look then between the poles they did decorative lighting for at night and then ran what i could i couldn't tell if it was fiber or ethernet but kind of daisy chain between the poles all the way down the street i just thought it was actually a pretty interesting uh where's the surveillance camera you can see like on the second tier down you see they're at a 45 degree angle looking down okay they were they were down on every street on every corner all the way around yeah i just thought it was right there if you see you see that little um black antenna sticking down i think that's a wi-fi access point built in there Hmm. you can see two antennas on the top too yeah yeah oh yeah yep and there's yep up on the top there so they must have both two four and five gigahertz they're transmitting out of there um I, i just thought it was an interesting deployment yeah, I, I feel like, Travis, you probably learned a heck of a lot about decorative lights. And for a while, they were a challenge for people trying to put Wi-Fi access points on, I think. Well, somebody spent a lot of money on these. I guess my only issue with these is whatever technology's in there, they're probably stuck with it now. Because it's not they're not going to be able to get kind of the best of breed access points to put out there. Plus, if you want to get real nerdy, I'm not a real fan of putting antennas right up next to a metal cowling like they did for you know rf propagation but yeah this is an early show right chris i thought we were talking oh absolutely and i think um i mean to give people a sense those towers i mean those poles are probably what like ten thousand dollars twelve thousand dollars i would guess they're probably not up in that twenty five thousand dollar range i wouldn't think right well pre pre current situation i don't know when these were bought so i can't comment on them but they're meant to be like 
decadal long investments, right? I mean, Christy probably well, knows more about this than any of us working for a city. Yeah, these these investment in this, they expect them to last a really long time. They're part of the basic architecture of the downtown look, and, and they don't expect to replace those anytime soon. We have something very similar in our downtown. Oh, you do? That's integrated technology into the light? No integrated technology because okay. they bought them so many years ago that that wasn't even available and an option at the point that point. But they sure aren't going to replace those poles. Yeah. Right. When we've done downtown broadband deployments, we typically will encourage the downtown people to have business owners volunteer to put, mount them on their buildings rather than put them on light posts. Because light posts, there's a lot of reasons that that's not a real great place to deploy stuff. So, and are those, is that mainly for free Wi Fi distribution or are those wireless networks you use for other reasons as well? For free Wi Fi for the downtown. Yeah, absolutely. Free Wi Fi. How much do those, I mean, do you have a sense of what that costs you? Is it, um, is it kind of like a significant expense that you are kind of like, why are we doing this? Uh, or, um, you know, how does that work? How do you think about that? For me. Yeah, both of you, I'd like to ask. I mean, for us, it's it's Planet Network's free Wi-Fi. So it's great advertising and people get on and they say, wow, it's fast, it works. And how do I get this at my house? Because half of the consumers call the internet Wi-Fi. Like, I want Wi-Fi at my house. They really say, I want internet at my house, but they say Wi-Fi. So we have good Wi-Fi downtown. I want that good Wi-Fi at my house. I know Planet Networks is the company that had it. So from that standpoint, we just look at it as advertising it's good will to the public and you know a lot of the people in these areas you know they don't get great coverage inside the buildings so we still have service from us if uh, if henry and Ryan don't figure a way to get a dash into that word wi-fi i'm going to be pretty upset in about 30 seconds uh christy <laughs> yeah um we had options of looking at the downtown um but when we we began to explore it it was a lot of historical buildings, a lot of issues related to architecture and, and that sort of thing. So we chose not to really pursue, uh, we worked with the mayor and stepped away from the downtown area and specifically focused our efforts on the parks, the city parks. And um, that's been huge for us. And it's the same thing that Robert said. It's, you know, a, a solid branding opportunity for us. It's it's that great free Wi-Fi um, that they want to get in their homes, but it um, is, is really isolated to our parks and not citywide. We've done parks as well, and that's also a great use case. And mm -hmm. while we're there, we now have an internet connection. We can also work with the municipality, put up cameras as well. Again, exactly. Yeah. Security cameras, um, that sort of thing, and all the parks are all, all powered by our services. Um, this is a great question. I want to come to this question in a second from uh, Rudolf Vanderberg. And um, first, Travis, I'm curious, you, know, you have all of those wireless access points. Um, have you learned anything interesting? I know you're going through a significant upgrade of, of gear on a lot of them right now, I think. Yeah, so we're in year uh, let me, uh, 14 of running the municipal Wi-Fi network for the city of Minneapolis. Originally, the concept was what they were going to, the idea was to provide in-home internet service which was, it was, it was pretty decent pre-Netflix days, very poor post-Netflix days uh, technology. So now it is relegated to uh, free public Wi-Fi for walking around, kind of a wall garden concept that people can log into. 
it provides advertising opportunity for us because we'll do the uh, the old classic pound. So it sorts the SSID at the top of their list. Fiber available now kind of concept. And then periodically, uh, we've had a lot of interesting things with natural disasters or maybe not so natural disasters, like when the 35W bridge collapsed, when a lot of issues going on around Minneapolis, uh, we'll revert to using Wi-Fi for, for any sort of communication needs at the time. But it's it's viable. The thing is, is the newer radios and newer technology works substantially better than the original stuff 14 years ago. So that's why in the San Diego model, I'm a little concerned about the pole aging, but the pole itself is not aging. So it might just end up being a brick technology in another five years for them. The the question then, uh, have any of you had challenges with uh, this uh, electricity um, issues availability? A lot of times we've found that light poles do not have 24-7 power. They're usually centrally switched by, and there's a box somewhere in a basement of a store in the storefront, or there's a, you know, something on a light pole or whatever, a timer. And so what we wind up having to do is put um, little electric eyes in all and change all the light bulbs as long as it's possible to, you know, put them in line with the light bulb. And then that way we can pull power out of the bottom and keep them on all the time. And then they just go on and off with uh, daylight sensors. Uh, the rest of the question has to do with um, wind um, and uh, the, the challenges of that. Um, so, um, Christy, what are your experiences with that? And you have the benefit of, I think, just being able to wave a magic wand and solve power issues, right? We, we do. Um, we've had the same challenges everyone else has had. You know, they're on timers. Um, if you parks close at certain times and then the lights will go out and that sort of thing. Um, you know, unfortunately we've had the challenges too for um, any sort of external power that we tried um, to, to or in the early days rig up um, to get them to work properly. And um, we had issues with homeless folks and um, unplugging them and plugging in their portable heaters to them and then uh, in turn cutting off of cutting off the network. So we've had all of those kind of challenges that, that, um, is um, you know everyone's faced early on, but we found some ways, like Robert said, to to avoid those with you know new technologies and and being able to power in a different sense and and isolating our power sources as well. Um, so I want to just that uh, was a thank thank you, Travis, for um, suggesting that photo. Um, this is a fun uh, digression. Um, I want to note for people who haven't uh, tuned in before um, that uh, Travis runs a fiber company in Minneapolis, that uh, Christy runs uh, one of the early municipal fiber optic networks, a citywide network, uh, a network that is old enough that um, if anyone out there claims that Chattanooga is one of the first, um, I think a lot of folks in Tennessee get a little bit chafed about that because <laughs> a lot of y'all um, certainly were fiber to the home before they were. And, yes. um, and so we all, we, em we embrace everyone's success, but there were some pioneers out there ahead of time. Um, and then, uh, Robert Boyle is in New Jersey. Um, and, uh, generally I think of you as connecting the less denser parts and rural parts. Is that the right formulation? Yeah. Kind of, uh, small towns with eight, you know, 8,000, 5,000 people in them, typically someone that range to super rural areas where you've got. For, you know, 20 or 30 square miles with four or 500 residents. So, 
Excellent. So Christy has said um, that uh, you're growing quickly and uh, that's posing some challenges. We're going to get into more technical discussions about how these networks are designed and things like that. But um, let's jump in there and uh, talk about um, how growth is dealing, how you have to deal with that because you're a network that has been fully built out, right? Like you should be in sort of like um, just uh, rent harvesting right now, right? Not having to solve these technical challenges. You would think, but you know, I, as I've said before, um, when we've talked, um, Clarksville's kind of a little bit of an anomaly. We're home to a university, Austin Peay State University. Um, we're also home to the 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell. Um, the military base is actually at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, but the largest portion of the landmass is on our side of the state line in Tennessee, and most of the soldiers and their families live in the Clarksville market. So it's an ever-changing, ever-growing market. Our economic development has just been off the charts. We um, have um, a Google data center here. We have LG, um, washer dryer manufacturing firm um, that are that's manufacturing the smart washer and dryers. Hankook um, Tire, which is a South Korean tire manufacturer. We just uh, acquired a, um, an Amazon um, distribution center. So there's tons of, of growth and lots of new jobs coming into the market. And so we never seem to stop growing, which is great. We love that um, from a utility perspective, electric and, and internet broadband services. We want it to continue to grow, but, but keeping up with that is the biggest challenge and keeping up with, you know, what, how to, uh, continue to sustain that constant growth you know the, the staff that i have working for me I, we often say well when things settle down we're going to do and now we just laugh and say things are never going to settle down <laughs> we have been averaging um on a on a slow month 600 new connects a wow. month. um we top out um when there's new troop deployments coming in or the university is starting up for the fall upwards of a thousand connects in a month. Um, so it's, it's constant, um, work to keep up with that. Do you have to roll a truck for like a quarter of those? Like how many of those are, are, are in areas where you just have to flick a switch to get them reconnected? Um, from an electric perspective, a hundred percent of those are, we, we fully deployed, um, um, fiber enabled smart meters. And so we, all of those are hundred percent, just flick a switch for the broadband side. It really depends on the type of service we do a lot. We do now allow customers to do self installs. So if the, the property had been previously connected in any way, shape or form, um, and there, and then it's an easy plug and play for internet. Um, even for TV services, um, little, you know, a little bit of that we still do with streaming. We, uh, we allow that to happen, but, uh, you know, again, there's some areas that, that were never were never wired, um, some properties that were never wired. And, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit with the challenges on the MDU side, but we still run into that almost 15 years later. And so we still roll a truck probably for about 50% of those. Hmm. So, I, so keep, I keep a, a staff of 12 um, installers, one-man crews, and then maintain another staff of about eight eight crews on a contract basis um, for the ramp up times. That's um, um, it's, it's an interesting approach. I mean, I, um, 
Um, I think I want to get into the topology because one of the questions I, I've asked Travis before, not really understanding all this, I mean, I feel like um, in my mind, the ideal situation is like a, a home run from each person, each, you know, each end up point of the network back to some sort of CO. Um, and then when you have way more homes than you expected, then you, you can't do that anymore. Uh, and I know that you have an active network, Christy. So um, how do you deal with the growth that's coming in? Well, and that's that's where the challenges are, are coming from. Um, you know, today, if if a um, three hundred to five hundred um, homes are being built in a new subdivision, we we pull two hundred eighty eight count fibers or whatever the fiber teams deem is necessary um, because we provide a fiber to every property um, because of the active Ethernet um, scenario. And each of those fibers will tie back from the property to, to a, a hub site that we, we maintain strategically. We have 38 of those that we maintain throughout the system. So it's an expensive proposition um, to do that. Um, and But it has been the thing that set us apart from everyone else. I mean, everybody's got a gig now. Um, back in the day, not everyone had a gig. Now everybody's got a gig. But our gig's a symmetrical gig and it's your gig and you're not sharing it and it's not split and it's not any of those things and that's what's set us apart from our competitors and it's also allowed us to um you know um provide the top level service that they expect from us um the other advantage we have if if you know, we're we're among friends here, I guess, is that we are the utility. And so we require the developer or the builder to to pay um, line extension fees per home that they build. And so that helps reimburse the utility for some of the costs related to putting the conduit in and the fiber in um, for each for these for these new properties. So that helps offset some of it. But it's it's an expensive proposition um, to continue to do that. And when you get into um, right now today, planned and platted in this market, um, there's over 2,000 new single family homes being built that will be ready in the next 12 to 18 months at the latest and 6,000 MDU doors um, being built that will be ready in the next 12 to 18 months. Wow. And that's an expensive <laughs> thing to keep up with. It is, but it's also exciting to know that someplace in the United States is building new housing. So that's mm -hmm. nice <laughs> because exactly. I don't know about you, Travis, but when I look around up here, it seems like we're not doing so much of that. <laughs> oh, no. Remember, I live in Arizona in the winter oh, now. That's right. So you, I, yeah. you mean you Minnesotans up there in the in the frozen? <laughs> no. <laughs> um. So Robert, I think you're more you uh, use more passive um, approaches, right? For the most part, I mean, you use both, but um, um, yeah, as well. Typically, businesses get um, dedicated connect. Larger businesses get dedicated connections. Schools, governments, those type of organizations get a dedicated fiber connection. Um, we find that GPON works really well for our use case for most of the areas where it's rural. We're going pretty far with it, and we're trying to kind of deploy on in the most economic basis as possible. And most people are just not using that much bandwidth, really. Um, Do you chafe when when Christy says the thing that I hear from so many active folks that um, they deliver a true symmetrical connection? Well, I mean, ours is also a true symmetrical connection. We, I thought you'd say that. <laughs> yeah, we, we, I mean, can everyone get that same speed all at the same time? You know, 
then we've never run into an issue where a single customer has run a speed test and said, I'm not getting the speed I'm paying for. Um, you know, we, we only do one by 32 splits. So, and you know, you've got two and a half gigs down, 1.25, and now with the 10 gig XGS bond, we're not selling 10 gig service over XGS bond. You know, we're selling two and a half gig service, we're selling five gig service. So the reality is that people are, even if two people or three people are doing speed tests, the other two and a half gigs is more than enough for all the other 32 people using the connection at the same time. Sure. This is a this is a good chance for me to remind vendors that if they want to send me any um, 10 gigabit home, um, you know, Soho kind of uh, switches to test out, I'm I'm open to that because I think this is the ultimate joke of um, everyone who wants more than a gigabit is that um, none of us have home networks that can support it yet. Some, some of the stuff's starting to come out. You're starting to see two and a half gig capable little switches, but it's trickling in like Ubiquity has some stuff, uh, but, you know. There isn't much out there that you're not buying it for $99 at Best Buy. Right. So, um, and so there we have, I think, you know, there's two different approaches regarding generally. And I, and I think, you know, for people who are less technical, I would just briefly say that, you know, on an active network, you basically often have one fiber per person and you're able to make sure that that person is never going to deal with contention, um, you know, with uh, their neighbors and things like that on a, on a passive system, uh, like GPON or the XGS pawn, um, there is a possibility, um, it's incredibly slight that people would experience a slowdown. It would be a fairly slow, a fairly um, small slowdown. Um, and I think, you know, we don't want to get into a sort of a which is better kind of thing. I mean, there's trade-offs to it. Um, and if you're in a rural environment, trying to deliver a fiber to everyone's door may not be um, the best use of your money. Um, so, uh, but I do want to talk a little bit more about how you're specifically dealing with things that I don't understand as much. So Travis, I don't know if you have any specific technical questions as to how um, they solve different challenges um, on the network. Yeah, so I mean, the thing is, is even in an active network, you have contention points further downstream. So I, I don't think it's kind of a black and white kind of, you know, one is potentially as contention versus another one. I mean, if, if your uplink from your switches in the CO or in the hub are saturated, then all of your active customers are as well. So I think really it's proper network management, proper oversubscription, make sure you have enough capacity in all in all 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 tiers of your network are very important. So for us, we run an active network, and the predominant reason we do that is to be vendor agnostic. I think the mistake the GPON vendors made is they don't always play together correctly. You know, one vendor to another. But now with XGS Pond, that's more of a standard, and it appears that the vendors are going to play nicely to each other. So we are currently testing XGS Pond for areas where we're maybe a little fiber light and predominantly in a residential area. Um, I think that there's there's a plausible, you know, there's a possibility there. I just, I never wanted to get trapped into somebody's ecosystem. That was always my biggest fear. And plus it's pretty simple. I mean, if you've got one fiber running to a house, I mean, honest to God, you can set, put a visible laser down it, see it come out the other end. If you didn't do maintenance, you're only taking one customer down versus 32. But I will tell you, it is a incredibly expensive way to deploy a network. So that's a huge negative. And if you're starting out and, you know, capital is is a constraint, it you can build GPON networks that maybe can be upgraded down the road if necessary. 
you may with XGS Pond, and now there's 25 gig Pond coming out. You may you may never have to. It was just at the time 10 years ago when we chose the direction to head. Um, that's where we went. And I'll tell you what, when you when a fiber hit on a backbone cable happens, oh man, you don't want to be running an active network. Oh, geez. So I was curious. So if someone puts a backhoe through that fiber that has 5,400 strands, does that take yeah. just hours and hours and hours to get reconnected then? So our largest span, like going under rivers or going, you know, through areas of 6,912 fibers, I think you do everything in your power to make sure that that does not get hit. And this is a part of the um, operating a fiber network that goes very underappreciated is the locating the watchdogs to make sure that when people are digging next to your stuff, you have somebody there. Um, and then, you know, off you go. Yeah. So, um, Christy and Robert, any reactions to that? Um, no, I, I, I agree with everything you said. I, I don't think anything. I mean, that, and in different situations, we would use active different situations. We would use passive. It's just most of our areas are very rural. You know, we're doing this on a limited budget. And so, for us to deploy active, um, it would cost them, you know, my calculations, it looks like it would cost us about two to three times as much as deploying yeah. GPON. And 99.9% .9 of our customers don't notice it. We run, even to these rural communities where we're serving, we'll run a 72 count or 144 count fiber, and we'll use 12 or 24 fibers. So my guys can overlash two miles in a day. So if we need more fiber, and we always have extra fibers really close so if we need a dedicated connection for someone, we can do it in a day. It's not a big deal because there's always extra fiber throughout the network. Mm -hmm. And we're a member of the 25 gig um, uh, GSPON MSA also. So we're you know, working toward that. And, uh, you know, 25 gig GPON is probably, you know, end of this year stuff is going to start shipping. So. And Rudolph is correct. Yeah, you can you can run active or a point to point and. XGS bond over the same fiber, different different wavelengths. So, yeah. Christy, is there a is there a power difference um, from your point of view as you're looking at this stuff, or do you just have, as the power company, do you have endless power, or even view it as a benefit to use more and more power? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to pay for our own power, so yeah, no, it's not a benefit, <laughs> but um, and we don't get a discount. But um, no, it's not, there's not a huge power difference. And in fact, um, what we're finding, I think, is that the, the um, XGS pond equipment that we're looking at for some of our expansion and growth areas will actually take less power. Um, you're gonna go down to a chassis-based um, system that's gonna serve about 500 customers um, out of one card, um, as opposed to to serve those 500, same 500 number of customers. You're probably looking at 20 or 30, uh, 20 to 25 switches um, in the old, in the active scenario. So yeah, it's definitely going to be a less of a power draw um, on our system. Are you using, I'm sorry, go ahead, Christopher. No, no, please, you. And are you using 24 port switches or 48 port switches? 48 ports. Oh, we are. Okay. Okay. 
Uh, when I was first learning the difference between active and passive back in the days when GPON was brand new, I think, um, uh, there was a, a sense at that time, one of the challenges, uh, at least from the person I was learning from of active, was that you would have to have um, more hub sites that uh, required that power and um, air conditioning then and and all this other stuff that went along with it. Is that is fiber cheap enough now that you can run that back to more centralized places where that's more economical or am I just misremembering and misunderstanding the whole situation? I think it could be in some scenarios, but it really depends on your d density um, in those areas. And then it also depends on your length of your runs because you start to have, you know, a loss budget um, that starts to affect your performance on, on that. So, you know, we ended up entering into this with, um, originally there were 32 hub sites, we're up to 38 now. Um, and partially that's because when we, we build a new substation on the electric side, to manage and, and control um, the growth for electric, we'll slap a hub site in it and because we know that fiber growth is going to come out of there as well. That's got to be nice, Travis. That's the part that you don't have to, that you get, you get to deal with is uh, finding the homes, the uh, other places you can um, build a, buy a place to, uh, to secure for your hub sites. Oh, I, I'm so jealous of what Christy has going on. Yeah, we have to, <laughs> We have to hunt around, buy something, tear it down, build it because, you know, we're overbuilding in a, you know, the city, how long, how long has the Twin Cities been around for, Chris? You know, it's, you know, and so we're like last to the game right now. So. And we buy uh, properties as well all over the place. So. So let's, let's jump into that, that question quick and ask Christy, what is a, a loss budget? Well, when we talk about it from our perspective is, is it often depends on the length of the run on the fiber um, from from point A to point B, from the customer's home back to the hub site. And it, is it too long that you start to lose your your light readings on it and they start to, to degrade the signal quality? We try not to have, you know, we ha it try not to have a, a huge um, run back from one hub site to the next. Um, right. And then um, one of the things that we've been really exploring and the team's been looking at is what does that mean for us in some of our areas when we convert to the XGS um, system is when we're taking that same run and splitting it 32 ways, is that gonna create problems with our with our loss on our quality for the service? Now, when you, I'm presuming that when you buy the fiber, um, different fiber has different characteristics and then also the uh, electronic system that you're, the vendor that you're using probably says this will go 10 kilometers or something like that. And then, so yes. you probably don't want to go more than nine well. kilometers, right? <laughs> yes. And the optics as well. Yes. So the, most of what we do with active is 20 kilometer optics. Mm -hmm. They cost, you know, for 10 gig is what, $12 or something now, but, um, if you go so say say twelve dollars or whatever for for a ten for a twenty kilometer optic, if you go up to a forty kilometer optic, that's you know sixty or seventy dollars, and you go up to an eighty kilometer optic, and now you're talking about you know one hundred eighty dollars or something. So the difference in, in the equipment per subscriber is significant when every single subscriber needs three hundred sixty dollars worth of equipment versus twenty four dollars worth of equipment. I mean, I'm not counting the switch. I'm just talking about the optics. Right. Exactly. We are, you know, we do have the luxury of being, you know, pretty dense. So we're not as rural probably as you are, Robert. And so we, do, we don't have to worry about, you know, longer spans as much as, as some others do. But we, it is something we, we're cognizant of 
and are looking at closely when we start to move to the XGS pond. So one other thing, Chris, you said about the different um, fiber providers or different fiber companies, the loss budget or whatever. And I mean, differences in manufacturing or whether it's Prismian or Corning or AFL or whatever, those are almost irrelevant. I mean, you're talking oh, okay. about, you know, a couple dB for our purposes, but we're talking about short runs. If you're talking about building fiber across the nation and whether you want your repeater huts every 200 or 300 miles or something, that's a different story. But when you're talking about what we're talking about, there's almost no difference. Uh, one good splice versus one bad splice can make more of a difference than the type of fiber. Exactly. Now, Travis, when we were at Nanog, you were um, uh, getting different orders of, of products and things like that. And I barely tracked what was going on. Um, do you want to talk about some of those things? Well, so probably I assume, Christian, Robert, you guys are both running Bidei. Um, that was so, one of the things I had no idea. Yeah, bidirectional, yeah. I was guessing. And, and bidirectional. So the 100 gig bidirectional optics are starting to hit the market. So so real quick, for people that are just starting to buy it, or starting to look at building a fiber network, don't make the mistake I make and cheap out and, and try to buy the five kilometer optics. 20 kilometers should be your minimum. Even if you only think you're going to go around the block, by the time you go through all your splice vaults and all your slack and everything else. So I made that mistake and had to replace about, oh, I don't know, 600 pairs of fibers or sorry, optics, just because I was trying to save a dollar. So anyway, so back to the 100 gig buy die. Yes, 100. So one gig, 10 gig, readily available, very inexpensive, high quality, no issues. 100 gig buy die optics are now starting to become available. And uh, so that will be the next um you know, I, I don't know how Christy hooks her hub sites together, but we, we hook our COs together with, a hundred, you know, bonded or lagged 100 gigs. And if we can do it over a single fiber versus two, that just, you know, gives us effectively double the capacity. Does, is, is it bi-dye as opposed to side-dye and tri-dye? Like... Tri-dye, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Bi-directional, yes. <laughs> so one thing with what Travis just said, and this is a, a, a real advantage of active over passive or you know cheap on so if i want to if i have a, a particular group of 32 customers that's on cheap on and i want to do xgs pawn i need to either upgrade if if the proprietary vendor that we're using for cheap on has a 10 gig option we can do that or i have to get coexistence optics or i have to change the equipment at all 32 sites you know all those 32 customers and do it and coordinate it so that they're not down so um that's you know, kind of a downside to, to doing upgrades with GPON, where if Travis or Christy have a customer that wants to go from one gig to 10 gig to 100 gig, they just get somebody on both sides, change the optics, and in, you know, 30 seconds or a minute or whatever, they're back up and running at the faster speed, so. I think this was a seed that uh, Christy had planted um, when we were talking about uh, the show was uh, you had an example of a school and how the way you built the network really allowed you to uh, do a rapid upgrade and when it was needed. Yeah. And, and it's actually, it was 42 um, schools within our, our footprint. Um, again, large growth community. We build a new elementary, middle or high school every year um in this in this market so but we had 42 we had the school systems um uh, bandwidth we were their bandwidth provider and we have 42 locations so the school year 2019 school year um, started with about 50 percent of the students in the classroom and then 50 percent of the students in a virtual classroom 
learning from home because of the COVID restrictions and everything else. On day three, I mean, we were we were delivering them a 10 gig connection with one gig point to point connections to each of those 42 locations. They were cranking along prior to that just fine. On day three of, of that t- um, 2019 school year, um, their um, CIO contacted us and said, I need to move to 20 gig. Can you do that? Within two hours, we had them moved over to 20 gig because it was that easy. As Robert said, you just go out on either end and you change things out. And it was the main feed that we changed out because we dumped into their central offices, that 20 gig. We spent the entire following summer because they wanted to move all of their um, um, point-to-point connections from 1 gig to 10 gig. We spent the entire summer changing um the connections and, and, and upgrading from one gig to 10 gig. And then when they started the school year, their primary bandwidth feed uh, moved from 20 gig to 40 gig. And so they're running the entire school system and, and, and have also created a um, elementary, middle and high school that's virtual in the system as well. So that we still have a large portion of students that, that um, take virtual classes as well. Um, and it's all around for the 40 gig, but it's that, that scalability, that flexibility that active brings to the table. That's so nice to have, especially for enterprise level and commercial, large commercial customers. Yeah. And just to be clear, we hundred percent agree with that. And all of that for us is all active as well. Yeah. And we'll keep that as we as we go and start to move for our growth areas into the XGS Palm world. Um, our active will still be the core of our system, and and that's where we'll we'll house all of our government buildings and university and school system and all of the large entities will still be on an active scenario. Why are you uh, moving to the XGS platform? to really manage the growth. And and it really stemmed from, we had a, when we talk about our growth too, in addition to um, all of the development within our area, we just had recently an annexation um, into our community too. So when when it there is a law in the state of Tennessee that if, if you are a developer and you're developing in a non-incorporated area that bumps up, to an incorporated area like the city of Clarksville, and you want to annex that in, and the folks that are moving into that area or that are living in that area, if they will agree to that and sign a petition, then you can be annexed in, and your area, your property now becomes part of the city and not part of the county. So we had that happen for an area just outside of our service territory. It had about 300 homes already being serviced um, with electric from our co-op, but no broadband. They had not built broadband at that point to that area. And the developer that led the charge to get them annexed in was also developing a MDU property that was going to have upwards of 900 units on it. Well, interestingly enough, it's it sits on the opposite side of the interstate. We have our interstate system run straight through the middle of our town. It sat on the opposite side of our interstate system. And to service those 300 homes and the um, impending apartment complex, MDU, um, we would have had to run four 288 counts, four to five 288 count fiber counts across the interstate which is a huge construction project and, and a nightmare in dealing with um, Department of Trans- 
transportation and permitting and all those great fun things and we were all just dreading it and one of the the staff members um, one of my senior engineers came to us with this xgs pond scenario we took a look at it we began our testing on it and we are now in the process of building a single 96 count fiber across the interstate to 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 service that we've got We've tested the XGS pond system in our, our labs, and then now it is being deployed out to friendly customers in that general area to, to be able to test for us, and it's performing very well. We've not seen any issues related to the bandwidth. Um, my biggest fear was how is it, you know, am I gonna still deliver if they want a gig? Is it gonna be a gig? And, and, and is it still gonna, you know, perform the way my active system has performed? And it's so far, it's doing great for us. It, we've not seen a change at all. The only thing, as I understand it, the only thing more fun than building across an interstate is when you're doing it and you drop the conduit halfway. Uh, right, Travis? <laughs> oh, yeah. Or you pull six back and you only get five. That's another <laughs> problem, right? <Yeah>. Oops. <laughs> Um, we have a, a great question. We have our, our guests will be joining us in a second, but before then, I just want to run this question out. Um, uh, average traffic levels per sub um, in your networks um, off the top of your head? A couple megs, usually. Average. Right. Yeah, this is, this is the dirty little secret of running internet fiber networks or internet networks. So ours, ours um, Sunday night, uh, 7 to 8 p.m. Central Time, Monday night, the same time, or what we consider our peak uh, consumption. Uh, we run about, so you get you got kind of some logical breaks. When you get past 10,000 customers, when you get past 30, when you get past 50,000. Um, so at over 50,000, we see about 2 megabit per subscriber. 81% of that, though, is going to local caching or local PNI peer or local IX kind of traffic so and we can we don't need to delve into that today I think we've talked about that in the past a little bit Chris but if you know so if you build your network right there's not a lot of consumption per user but the the whole there's a tremendous amount of consumption and Christy those numbers line up that way for you too yeah about the same we we right now have um, three 100 gig egress connections um, and that's really primarily for failovers in case we have any issues. But typically at peak times, um, even with caching and everything else that we have in place, we'll hit um, about 80 gigs of traffic um, through the whole customer base. Mm -hmm. so. We don't use any caching at all. Um, we have the benefit that we're really close to everything being here in New Jersey. So we're on all the major internet exchanges. We also have peering out in Los Angeles and we're also in Europe, but um, most of our traffic is here in New Jersey and New York area. And so anything Netflix, Amazon, Apple, all that stuff just goes from us to one or two routers away and on our network and then goes directly to whoever that is. So most of that traffic is coming or going directly off our network to wherever it's going. But, but it is a good point though, again, for people that are looking to start a network or build a network, if you can get to an internet exchange point, that is your number one goal. And then if you can get there, then you can get your transit providers as well. You know, whoever that's gonna be servicing that. So yeah, geographically, I don't know, Christy, what you guys have down there, but I know Robert, I mean, you're, you're, you're 
you're where you need to be. So we're like in Minneapolis, we need to go to Chicago to get to a lot of the content. Yeah. Most all of ours goes um, Atlanta and Chicago, yeah, Nashville, yeah. Atlanta, Chicago. So we don't have anything closest we've got is Nashville and it's not even most of, most of it leaves Nashville and goes to Atlanta then. And I'm convinced quite frankly, this is the number one challenge for rural providers is getting this transit and transport services out of their community. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. There are a couple of rural communities here in New Jersey that we want to serve, but I have to build 60 miles of fiber to reach them. Exactly. No fiber in those communities. So. Yep. We've, uh, we've brought Jim in, uh, Jim Troutman. Um, do you want to introduce yourself quick? Hi, guys. Uh, Jim Troutman. I am Director of Technology at Tilson Broadband, which is part of Tilson Management. We have a small fiber to the home network currently in Vermont. Uh, companies based in Maine. I'm in Maine, and I also happen to be the director of the uh, Northern New England Neutral Internet Exchange, uh, NENIX, and we are one of those IXs that uh, Travis was just talking about. Excellent. We can't talk about these things too much or Reed will attack me for not having him on because um, <laughs> I, I, I would definitely want to have Reed back on when we when we dig into those. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, by the way, Reed, I'm not ignoring you. I, he's emailed me a few times. I'm not, I'm not ignoring you, Reed. <laughs> But Jim, you must have the finest collection of O'Reilly books I've ever seen. Just by the way. <laughs> oh yeah. well, thank you. Yeah, I I had to send it out a little bit to make it fit on the <laughs> The um, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, MDUs and the various challenges of dealing with them. Um, Jim, I, I wanted to start with uh, something that you and I had talked a little bit about, and I feel like I'll just hand it over to you if you want to jump on a soapbox for a second. This is not as Ooh. technical, um, right. but uh, I hate, 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 hate it when I hear that um, public housing is just going to solve the broadband problem by throwing a bunch of Wi-Fi radios in the hallways. Um, I don't think any of the ISPs uh, here would try to sell services in an apartment building that way. And I don't think it's appropriate to try to solve uh, low-income uh, connectivity challenges that way. And I think you and I agree on that. So we can start there as we start talking about MDUs. Oh, yeah. No, I the way I look at it for public Wi-Fi, Oh, it's like having a boarding sorry, house. Sorry, you just uh, just start over for a second. Your audio just cut out a little. Oh, sorry. Um, so the way I look at it, it's like having a boarding house. If you live in a boarding house and, you know, shared bathroom, shared kitchen, if that's acceptable uh, for certain types of people, most people don't find that acceptable anymore. Everybody wants their own bathroom and their own kitchen. So why should it be any different in public housing? Why should you have a shared Wi-Fi, which everybody in the building is on? And uh, you can't set up your own personal network for your own IoT devices, things of that nature. So I, I'm really not a fan. It's definitely better than absolutely nothing. But the way I think of it is it, it's really like a guest network in a corporate office. So that can that can lead us into this question of how we do solve uh, MDUs, uh, the technologies that are possible, um, as well as the various other political and uh, various challenges. Uh, I don't know if anyone wants to, um, Christy or Robert, if you want to jump in to share some of your issues. Robert, do you even have to deal with MDUs? We do. We actually, in, in a lot of the towns that we're in, there are MDUs. Um, we have great relationships with every single one of them except for one. Um, the one is owned by 
I don't know, some investment group out of, you know, out of the area and all of the ones that are locally owned, we give the, one of the key things is with MDUs and anyone who hasn't been in this business or is just watching this, who hasn't dealt with this, um, if you have a house or even you have like a small apartment build, you know, a multifamily house, you know, two or three, four units or whatever, it's pretty easy that we can just put a box on the side of the house, drill a hole or run it on the outside or whatever and go into your unit and provide you with service. Um, if it's a large, you know, brick or concrete box or whatever, and we need to get access to some conduit that's inside a closet locked in the basement, and then we need to run cabling through all the hallways to get there and through other riser cables that are into other locked closets on other floors, and only the super, the building owner, whatever has access to that, we simply can't get access to your unit without the cooperation of the building owner and or super. And um, and sometimes one wants to help, but the other one says no. So, um, and, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's one or the other, but. Because um, you really need to sell the whole building. Right? I mean, you have to get every last person, but you really have to be able to go big in the building, right? So we have approached it two different ways. We've approached it in some cases where we will, go in and wire up just one or two people who want service. And that's kind of the start. And then it kind of starts this viral effect where everyone says, oh my God, that's amazing. How do you have that? Because mine's horrible. My DSL is two megs. How do you have gigabit speeds? And then you start getting a lot of people and then we say, hey, contact your your building owner, you know, management company or whatever, and then talk to them. And then we'll do it kind of right and put something in, a, in every closet on every floor and kind of have a structured cabling system and build it so that it's really easy to turn up customers and it's something that makes sense. Um, but without access to the building, we can't do any of that. So what we do in those in those buildings typically is either the management will, company or the, the landlord will already approach us and say, hey, we need to do something for our residents because I can't, nobody wants to rent in my building because we don't have good internet access. And in those cases, it's great. Listen, we'll come in, we pay 100% of the cost all we need you to do is just give us access and we'll sign a multi-year deal with them for building access. And, and as part of that, we give them free internet for their video surveillance and free internet for the super or their management office or whatever. And that's typically a fair deal for everybody. And, you know, it helps us. And then they let new tenants coming in know about our service. And, you know, over time we wind up getting the majority of the people in the building. Um, and that's kind of in a good, healthy, productive relationship where it's mutually beneficial for everyone. Um, in the other ones where the people are kind of absentee owners, it's just a hassle to them. They don't really care. And, and unfortunately, a lot of those buildings are all Section 8. They're all low income and they're people who don't have any economic voice. They can't move out. They can't say, hey, if you don't let these guys come in, then we're going to find somewhere else to live because that's the place that will take them in, in the area. And um, so unfortunately, those are the people who suffer the most. Um, there, there's a, a rule for um, OTARD, which is that anyone, um, the FCC years ago came with this ruling saying that anyone who wants to can put a, an antenna on their apartment balcony or whatever, and that the landlord and the municipality, nobody can say anything about it as long as it's in a private space for them. They can't attach it to the common wall, but they can put it in any space that's exclusively theirs. And I think what you need is kind of almost an OTAR type ruling for access to those types of buildings that are large enough that it's a, it's a problem. But I, I don't know the solution without saying being very heavy handed. And so that's not really a great solution either. But 
No, but I like the idea of giving the the free service to the the super and uh, you know along those lines. It seems like a good solution. I wonder, Christy, like, um, is that even something you would be allowed to do? Uh, it's one of those things where the the public entities have often much more strict requirements as to whether or not they can do things like that. Yeah, we we don't do that, um, and a lot of it is because of restrictions. We have, you know, we we have the all of us have the wonderful layer of the FCC. Um, regulations, but we have the extra added layer of TVA, um, who's our power provider. And they now that they understand that broadband's not going to go away, and most of their their um, customers are going to be in the broadband business, they're getting their their hands into a little bit more on the regulatory side for us. So we don't typically do things like that. And we had a real challenge when we we started up several years ago, in that because we the way we were doing our service, everything was. Uh, wired um, with Cat5, and so we were having to go in and completely rewire all the properties. And you know, if they're built on a slab, you're looking at you know, no way to get in unless you wrap it pretty much in Cat5, and it looks horrible. So we were, were locked out of a lot of MDUs and a lot of private owners. We've worked really hard over the last few years to build stronger relationships with the developers and the builders in the market, so that we get in there as they're build, building and. We've got several that <clears throat> don't necessarily do exclusive deals, but they won't allow anyone else to wire the building but us. And so that helps us tremendously. Uh, we've got some that we've gone in and wired completely um, the buildings with the understanding that we would be offering services there. And we turn around and look, and one of our competitors has also wired the building. And wow, suddenly they have an exclusive to be in there. So it's we've run across a lot of those challenges. One of the things that benefits us that's interesting in this market too, as I said, there's a lot of folks that move into the market, but what happens a lot with our military and our university group is they'll come here not necessarily knowing what part of town they want to live in. So they'll rent an apartment in one area and in our community because of folks um, with their station being stationed here for short periods of time, some of the apartment complexes will do three and six month leases. So they'll come in, sign a six month lease, figure out this is not exactly the property for me. I don't want to live in this one. I'm going to go over and move to this one. Because they've got that ability to move around a little bit more in this market, um, what we're finding is, is if a property owner or manager doesn't let us in, we just kind of let it play out for a little while. And the tenant demand will usually create a phone call to us because they're wanting to move into that particular property. But when they find out they can't carry their service that they had at another property with them, um, and they, it starts to get a little little uncomfortable for the property owners. So we usually get in on the backside of it. With these new plans that we've got um, and the way that we're, we're redoing some things with the XGS pond that I talked about, um, we're working very hard to have a, um, a um, set standard of how we're going to wire everything and going in from the ground floor up on all of these properties. And, and so that we're able to, to reach all 6,000 of the new doors that are coming. Travis, the, um, the, question, the, the points that Christy was just making echoed what I feel like I've heard you say before, which was that basically nothing has helped you get into MDUs like a uh, rise in vacancies. Yeah, when when vacancies are near zero percent, landlords have very little motivation to let you in. But as vacancies go up, um, we get more um, 
they get a little easier to work with. So we, we group them into a couple different categories. We have what we call small MDUs. These are four units or less. We find those are relatively easy to get into. And, and we do like what Christy does. We let the tenants kind of drive the conversation. Um, and when the tenants driving the conversation, the landlord tends to be in that small MDU demographic seems to be, I'd say 99% of the time we can get the unit wired. But we, we require that we wire every unit in the building when we're there. Um, we found it challenging, and I'd be interested to hear Robert's position on this. The, the constantly rolling the trucks back to do onesies, twosies is very expensive and really doesn't provide the customer experience we want. We want a customer experience where you simply plug in and you're on with, with a minimal amount of um, hurdles to go through. The large MDUs are interesting because, again, we do. it's all about we try to make market awareness. We try to make sure that when people are looking for units that they understand the value we provide and they, they will go to units that we serve. So, uh, but we do very similar to what Robert does. We give uh, free connectivity to their surveillance cameras, to their uh, entry access systems, to their office, anything to do to get in there and wire all the units. And again, like Christy was talking, we have a, we have a standard universal footprint we put in every single building. And on new construction, we get in there at when it's still dirt, and we're part of the conversation and get those cables run while the walls are exposed. In our area, we are every single developer comes to us because they know that if they don't have Planet Networks in their building, they won't be able to sell or rent their units. Yeah, that's Great. and that's that's where I want to I want to come to Jim for a second as we can talk more about the technologies that are possible. Um, but I did want to note that this is my impression is that a lot of people want to see uh, the FCC solve this to enable more competition, although often not in buildings that you've conveniently found a way to lock others out of. <laughs> like, you know, there's always a, there's always going to be um, I think you're always trying to get into some buildings and play defense in others. Um and um, and ultimately, the landlords just have so much power, and like that's the way the system works. And the and I don't know that the federal government can do anything to force open those doors. Um, you know, San Francisco developed an ordinance, and that solved the issue for about eighty percent of the MDUs, from what I understood. And then twenty percent of the building owners were like, "Sue me, like you know, whatever. Like I'll take you to court. I'll happy to eat the, you know deal with that." So like, there's no perfect solution. I don't want to jump in front of him, but real quick. I'll just I'll I'll start with this. I do not want to have a relationship with a disgruntled landlord, and if and if the, and if the and if the feds are strong-arming to let us in, no thanks. I I just I'm just not interested in that kind of relationship. We're we're there to provide a higher quality service, higher level of customer service, and the landlord should want us to get in, to so that he can he or she can rent more units. Yeah, no, that's I, I wouldn't have thought of that. So I appreciate that point. Yeah. Um, what I want to throw to Jim is, I mean, like, I'm well, you can go ahead and answer that. And then I'll come back to the technology thing, because it looks like you're ready to roll. Well, I, I've seen instances where landlords have said, hey, we want to offer this as an amenity. We want to pay you a larger flat rate. Your sound is cutting out every now and then. It's just uh, cut out again. I don't know. I don't know. Sorry about that. No, no I can hear you. Um, so yeah, having, having the landlords actually wanting to offer it as an amenity service is something that I'm seeing more and more often. Um, there's also the problem of course, with a lot of these legacy buildings where, uh, it's, it's an old building. It was wired, you know, decades ago, 
and it and as everyone said, it's very difficult to um, run new cable in some of these buildings. So as a stopgap measure, there's definitely some technology out there, uh, such as VDSL systems to use the copper within the building. There's also uh, Mocha. existing copper. You, right after you said Mocha, box. you dropped again. Uh, it it may be my Starlink connection. <laughs> ah, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> I'm sorry, but uh, um, yeah, milk yeah, is a good alternative too. If uh, if you have access to the coax, you can actually deliver gigabit level service over existing coax. It's certainly not fiber, but it might get you started for the first year until you can go back and get the building wired. But you, you go ahead, Robert. I'll say we we tested it in our lab. We tested it, and gdate.hn is even better than Mocha, um, and in the lab it works great. We found in the real world, it just makes us look bad. So we will not do anything now unless it's fiber to the unit or Ethernet to the unit that we have installed. Um, we just we've tried the other technologies, and like I said, in theory they're great, and it's definitely better than DSL, and it's probably comparable to cable, but it's not the fiber experience that all of our customers expect and that people expect of us. Yeah, usually I've seen it when I've worked with uh, other ISPs in the past. It was like a a transitory thing you'd say well here we can give you a hundred meg service and uh and you know because we want to get you online right now and then we're going to get you fiber as soon as we can yeah yeah and i think one of the issues that i've seen in trying to work through some of this issue in more public housing situations is um it's not just inconvenient to go through building materials but you can't without like pulling a bunch of permits because if it was built in the 70s or earlier it's got hazardous materials that you can't just expose people to um now i've seen all kinds of cool things like um i have this on my my desk at work the uh, uh ofs with like um, a thin fiber in the molding that you can't even really tell is there um you know it seems like there are a number of solutions along those lines but then trying to get through the walls can be um, a challenge i'm guessing but um i guess the, so the question i had about the the cabling was um if there's a coax cable it probably belongs to an incumbent right and you can't even if you wanted to you can't really have multiple providers sharing a coax cable is my understanding correct yeah it, it varies typically uh, i've seen lots of buildings where the building owner uh, put the cable in as part of the construction and the cable TV company, you know, made use of it, but it was actually the, the owner's cable. Um, it gets a little murky, but generally, you know, if the owner says you can do it, then we do it. Sure. Um, Christy, have you had to had any of this fun? Um, you have these, um, uh, I'm sure a lot of older buildings up there. We we do. Oh, hold on a second, guys. <laughs> the lights went off. <laughs> we we do. We've had some of the same challenges all over the place related to um, older buildings not being able to get um, uh, service into them, not being able to wire. Uh, all, all of those kind of challenges that everyone else has faced. It's. Uh, um, one of the reasons why go, going into this huge push for growth that we've had, um, we're looking at some some new technology. Um, well, probably not new technology for everyone else, but for us, it certainly is with going in with a, um, a micro duct um, type system and then ruggedized fiber 
um, into the into the system and so that it it uh, is a lot easier, a lot faster install. But most of the older properties around here, like I said, we ended up having to either figure out creative ways to run the wiring um, and not wrap the building um, without, you know, attic spaces and and firewalls and that sort of things. I guess my last question related to the MDUs is, to me, it seems like point-to-point -point connections on roofs to deliver high-capacity bandwidth to these, um, it seems like it's pretty good. Um, you know, I understand that with fiber, you have a lot fewer points of failure, but um, if you can get, a, you know, if you can drop a gig on an apartment building to split up among 50 units or something like that, that more or less solves the problem, right? Um, I mean, you get some incremental improvement by having an actual fiber, but is it really that big of a deal? It's a big improvement for sure. And and there's certainly ISPs doing that. You look at NYC MASH in New York, Coursera, a not-for-profit, but they're using that model very effectively. And I think uh, Monkey Brains in California has done a lot of rooftop wireless and uh, to some some success. You know, Obviously, everybody wants fiber, but uh, I, I love rooftop wireless if it's... Uh, you know, a stepping stone to getting your fiber. Well, and let me, let me give, I know Robert and Christy both look at the radar way, and I'm sure Travis has things to say, but when I was talking with Monkey Brains, one of the things they told me is they've had a number of customers sign up, say they wanted fiber, and Monkey Brains said, well, we can do wireless for a few months while we figure the fire, fiber situation out. And then many of those folks just said, you know what, after a few months, this is this is fine. I'm, I'm meeting my needs with that rooftop wireless. And so they then said they were just going to, you know, not push it. I think with with good quality wireless gear, point to point, especially, there's there's no, it's you can't really tell the difference between that and a fiber connection. Um, but the biggest issue is the um, inside the building. I find that that's way more of a problem than getting fiber to the building, mm -hmm. in our experience. Yeah, and to, so if anyone's confused, I mean, in, in both of these situations, you would be using internal wiring of the building to distribute the signal in the building, and we're just talking about getting it um, outside. And the reason for that, in part, is because like wireless often is um, not uh, able to um, get enough of the signal through these building materials <laughs> to actually work well uh, inside the buildings. Well, let's let's make sure we caveat that though, because the difference between like GPON and active Ethernet very small the difference in wireless technology is about as broad as you can get so you mean between different vendors and and technology so so i guess when i when i hear rooftop we're talking line of sight we're talking like sick glue or higher quality products we're not talking like micro tick here and you know i'm just saying so we got to be real careful when we talk rooftop but the irony of the whole thing is the indoor component of it is the same. You know, when, when we do a, a line of sight, point to point, rooftop to rooftop, we, we build it identical to a fiber layout in the building. Just the egress happens to be coming through the roof instead of through the, uh, through the ground. And then when we roll by with fiber, we just unplug the wireless and plug in the, the fiber and keep, nobody even knows the difference. Travis, you might not be a Minnesotan in winter, but unless you learn how to say rooftop to rooftop, uh, people are still going to know where you're from. Yes, rooftop to rooftop. Yes, and I <laughs> and I apologize. I hung out with some Canadians for the last few weeks, so I picked up a couple of their 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 nuances too. So, all right. Well, let's move over to Christy, eh? <laughs> well, and we've not done any of the rooftop to rooftop type scenarios. Um, you know, the challenge was 
um, if we could get into the building, we were going in the building. Um, if we couldn't physically get into the building, even offering a rooftop to rooftop option um, wasn't what what we were still restricted from inside the building. Our challenges were always we just don't want to change anything. Competitors are working fine for us. We've got great relationships with them, that sort of thing. So we really focused on the areas where we could just physically get into the building and do what we needed to do with our traditional setup. Travis, you unmuted yourself. Um, I'm just, uh, I would say if people are doing their business models and they're laying out kind of their geography and they're running past MDUs, uh, I think we're in year 12 now and we still have hundreds of buildings we've been unable to get into. So just, it's, it's, it's a slow process to get to them all. Just do not assume that you're going to get to them immediately. The other thing, like Jim talked about, that's become a lot more popular in the last two years is bulk deals where the landlord simply wants to buy for, you know, and, and be the ISP inside their building. So build that into your business model as well. So with a few minutes we have left, I want to throw it open. Any kind of technology, any aspect of the business plan, are there things on the horizon that you're waiting to see play out that you're really interested in right now? I want to start with Jim. Well, I want to talk a little bit about a, uh, a technique I've seen some ISPs in, in very rural areas like Maine do, which is uh, build your fiber network in the village where you have the density and then use a licensed backhaul to feed your village. Um, because in the very rural areas, a lot of your cost is getting to the village. And uh, that, like a licensed microwave, really lets you... Uh, get those customers quickly without all the expense. Yes, this was, uh, this was something that I had, um, had suggested years ago with uh, some of the mountain areas of uh, in Colorado, where uh, there's sort of like this area where it makes sense to do fiber to the home, but the getting there was prohibitive. And, and I was like, well, you should do fiber to wireless to fiber. Like, and, you know, as a non-technical person, it was just like, why don't you just do that? And uh, I guess that's more feasible now because they were, they didn't think it was such a good idea at the time. <laughs> yeah. Licensed is key, just as Travis was saying. You got to have good quality equipment to do point to point wireless. If you have good equipment and it's licensed frequency and it's set up correctly, it'll run very well. Well, and you're talking about areas where there's not a lot of interference, likely, right? You just have to worry about pines, I'm guessing, getting in the way over time. Well, I rain, see. rain is the well, other thing. And capacity, too. How, how much throughput can you get through this wireless link? So if you have a fiber network that's wildly popular, and wildly successful and you're onboarding customers like crazy just like we talked about the contention issues in an active e and a gpon network that might be your issue is now you don't have enough wireless backhaul to get you back to the fiber yeah so, i'm envisioning you know like you know 50 100 homes from what jim said um you know okay. not like yeah. uh you know three thousand. okay a couple hundred maybe at most you get, you get everyone in these rural areas if you bring a high quality product to that area you get like 90% uptake in the first year. So just I don't be know. Ready. Jim seems pretty partial to that Starlink. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I am on my local community broadband committee. Um, hopefully we're going to have some sort of fiber to the home solution in, in the town where I live. But uh, up until Starlink came uh, for me last year, I had spent uh, the last eight years on a four meg DSL connection. So uh, I, I, I couldn't even work from home most of the time. 
Ouch. I was just reminded of a of a uh, a, a comic. Um, it was actually they're talking about on the Security Now podcast, which is a great show from the Twit Network um, about the uh, guy who shows up at the gates of heaven and um, Saint Peter is there and says, um, "Well, um, it, it, you're supposed to go to hell, but uh, it looks like you spent a lot of years coding in assembly, so uh, we'll call it time served." Um, so <laughs> four, four megabits, we'll call it time served. Similarly. <laughs> Um, Christy, um, curious about, um, uh, any technologies on the horizon you're keeping an eye on and excited about for one reason or another. Well, I think that the biggest thing for us, and it's not really on the horizon, probably for some other folks, but the, the biggest thing for us that we're taking a look at now, um, is more opportunities to sell additional services to our, our, uh, commercial customers. And, and the, the focus we're, that we're, playing with now is the LTE backup. So we're looking at um, getting into that business and it sounds weird for us to say, okay, when my service goes down, I've got this other service I'm gonna sell you in the background. But with the commercial customers that we have in this market, we're very retail restaurant intensive in this market, um, keeping them up with their point of sale options and what what you know their their um, services for that is important. So we're we're digging into that and, and going to begin the testing of that service in the next couple of months. Is that that's mostly aimed? I'm guessing at um, that sort of like that point of sale where they don't need a whole bunch of of capacity. They just need to make sure they can run credit cards and that it, and... it's up all the time. Yes, mm -hmm. and interestingly enough, I had a conversation with I, I work with a consortium group for our video programming, and the biggest challenge I think we're going to find is getting that that LTE service contract. You know, do I go get that myself? Do I find a partner to do that with me? Um, and so I was talking with my video consortium um, group um, and was um, sharing with them. I said, look, you know, on the, the video side of our business, it's declining every day. We've offered streaming and it's 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 coming along. But, it, you know, you're still losing customers on the video side to cord cutting all, all, all the way around. I said, why don't you go negotiate me a contract instead of negotiating the next contract with ESPN? go negotiate me a contract with an LTE provider and you get in the LTE <laughs> business and, and, and bring me back something I can live with for pricing. And so we'll see what happens. Excellent. Robert. Have you, Oh, sorry. Real quick. Chris, are you talking about building your own CBRS network or are you thinking of, Using somebody else's LTE. Using network. somebody else's. Okay, got it. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me as a good time to. We have this interesting market disruption with AT and T, T Mobile, Verizon, all trying to figure out where their future is. I, I would try to get a long term deal. I feel like because now is the time to do it. Yeah, we we offer um, phone services, and one of the ways that we help um, pull customers over from the ILEC is we say, listen, we're providing with fiber, which you you had for two years and you've never lost service but we're also going to give you an LTE backup that's going to back up all your phone services. And that's not even on our network. And it's going to use AT&T and Verizon. And, um, you know, it's, we charge a nominal amount for it and it's just mm -hmm. an extra piece of mind, but also helps sell the VoIP services that otherwise they may be hesitant to switch to. So yeah, as far as new technology, I mean, we're always looking at things. There's nothing giant that jumps out at me to mention. Sorry. I just don't, don't have anything huge to, to mention. So. All right. I just want to see um, what number Travis will put in front of the letter G for the technology he's really excited about. Hey, am I that transparent? 
Uh, so for the end user, uh, two and a half gig will be a real thing this year. Uh, yeah. Finally, there will, there will be decent routers that are actually available. Uh, we'll start to see Wi-Fi 6E uh, access points rolling out for uh, to augment our home mesh, mesh network. Um, 400 gig on the backhaul will be a real thing in 2022 here. But sadly, and it's it's just more of the same stuff with just a bigger number at the front, Chris. You are correct. I will tell people the one huge surprise I had for 2022 is the cost of IPv4 IP addresses are at an all-time high. We're looking at over right around $50 each right now. So I would tell new people that are getting into this to seriously consider uh, rolling out initially with a strong IPv6 deployment or your... Uh, or your CapEx costs are going to be much higher than you're anticipating. So that was a, a new find in the last week. Yeah, 53 to 56 is uh, the most recent quote I got for uh, IPv4 per address. So yeah, yep. get your IPv6, we were, guys. When we were at Nanog, wasn't that November? It was like 25 or 30, wasn't it? So we paid... Yeah, two years ago. Two oh, years okay. ago. So we paid $23 each... Uh, two years ago, this year, fifty dollars each. Um, so it's 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 a big number. If you're, um, you know, I don't know, Christy, are you guys doing CG NAT or are you giving out IP addresses to all your subs? We're doing CG NAT. Okay. Our whole network is dual stack. We're still giving out IPv4 addresses. Um, we have enough address space to last us for the next year and a half, probably. But okay, that's, that's good though. I so I've, I've considered CG now, but I'm kind of old fashioned. So, you know, there's no tech support calls. So I, I'd be, I, do you find any challenges with it, Christy? Not really. I mean, we, we've pretty much done that almost from the very beginning. We were in a okay. CG NAT scenario. So no, no real issues with no, it. No PlayStation or Xbox problems or anything or UPnP or anything. Nice. No. Oh, that's great. One thing I would say, if someone's starting out small, like uh, Jim mentioned, some of these small towns where you're going to provide service to 200 homes or something, um, if, assuming you're in North America, um, log in, create an account with Aaron, and get on their waiting list. They are still handing out slash 23s and slash 24s. So yep. you can get address space for, well, I say free, but for whatever Aaron's $500 fee is or whatever. But for you know companies like ours where we need another slash eight, you know, Slash 18 yeah. or slash 16 or something, it's a totally different story. But, um, you know, if you need small address space to start your little rural ISP, um, you can get address space IPv4 and IPv6 as well is totally free. So, and I would we, highly, we, highly recommend that. We even yeah. negotiated one of our, our carrier jails for one of our egresses for a slash 23 to be included in it that we buy from them. Cool. Um, I just wanted to, to note one last thing as we're getting ready to to close down the show, and that's that if Christie's not having problems with CGNet, I got to think that you have more gamers on your network than anyone else. Uh, military base, the college, like, I mean, there, we do. there's serious gamers in your on your network, I'm sure. <laughs> we, we do. All right. So the vendor matters, which CGNet solution yeah, you use matters yeah. a lot. And that that is a very valid point, Jim, is, yeah, do not do a low cost solution. That's going to be my assumption. 
Excellent. Well, uh, thank you all for coming. I've uh, greatly enjoyed this. Jim, thank you for, for being our special uh, mid-break <laughs> mid guest or mid-show guest. I don't know what we're doing, but I think it's really fun to add someone on in the, the middle of the show. Uh, wonderful to have you join us. You've been great in the chat room. Uh, always appreciate your contributions. Thank you. Um, yeah, and thank you, thank you, Travis, as always. Thank you, uh, Robert and Christy. Uh, next week, we are going to be back with, um, oh, um, Travis, do you remember? Uh, I can't remember. These are... They're, they're new folks. We don't see them very often. So yeah, I'm, no, and I... I'm, I hope I'm, they're good. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to be mean. I don't think they're ever going to come back. Uh, Doug oh, and Chris, Kim. Chris, um, we've gone the whole show, though. We've gone the entire show without you finally answering the question. I won the chicken wing bet. Is that correct? Yeah, my time ran out. And, okay. um, <laughs> and the FCC did not increase the 25-3 in the last week? If they did, they did not tell me okay. <laughs> or anyone else. <laughs> All right. I'll be home tomorrow. I'm looking forward to it. I will uh, <laughs> I will go to the bank and get cash. <laughs> oh, and the way chicken wings are now, you might want to get a loan. So. <laughs> Come to Maine and we'll feed you lobster and oysters. Much better. Are you in All Maine? Right. Yes. yes. Oh. Man, all right, forget the chicken wings. We're heading to Maine, Chris. So, yeah, you yeah. guys are welcome anytime. Oh, no, I, I, Travis, I just need to find the time. I need to, um, I need to pause time because if I didn't have a six year old son, I would be driving across the country with Travis, doing yeah. my job remotely and visiting all kinds of networks and learning stuff. Um, so, and I want to commend the Wi Fi quality. Have you noticed? I haven't, I haven't, you've been out great. For, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, everyone, for, for listening. Thank you for, for um, the folks who came. Uh, thank you, um, I don't know, mom and dad. And uh, we'll see you next week for another episode of Connect This. Mm -hmm.